the idea that you're going to go to Africa and a middle class is going to be waiting for you and then you can serve them is not realistic. We have to ask, where does the middle class come from, right? Like, I mean, they just, but they just don't appear. They come through the process of market creation. So when you create a market that makes something simple and affordable, many more people can access it. That market pulls in so many things into the economy. It pulls in education. It pulls in healthcare. It pulls in jobs. And when it pulls those things in, it does it so that the market can survive, so that the market can thrive. Welcome to the African Optimist podcast. Well, actually, welcome to the very first episode of the African Optimist podcast. I am your host, Sanya Gura, and on this show, I unearth the wealth of opportunities that exist across the continent and speak to the inspiring people who are shaping its future. Today's guest is very special to me. He is the very reason this podcast exists. Over a year ago, I attended a boot camp held by the fabulous duo behind TEDx Johannesburg, Kelo Kubo and Tati Mohoro. It was hosted by Nigerian Eforsa Ojomo, who leads a US think tank at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Now, what I learned in those five days blew me away so much that I was compelled to start this podcast and ask Eforsa to be my first guest. Luckily, he said yes. In our conversation, we talk about the specific paradigm shift that is needed in cash-strapped economies, the power of disruptive innovations, and how to solve problems where no solutions were possible before by creating completely new markets. Lastly, a quick side note. With several recordings under my belt, I cannot believe how technologically challenged I was when I did this first interview. The sound, therefore, is of a lesser quality in the first 20 minutes and then dramatically improves after that. But don't let that deter you. Firstly, because Eforsa is clear enough throughout the whole interview. And secondly, because he has one of the most beautiful voices that you could hope to listen to about the potential that exists across our continent. Enjoy. Eforsa, the reason you are here is it wasn't said lightly. The day that I started that boot camp really transformed my life. And I think you hear that from everyone who has either read your book, who listens to you talk on a podcast, who follows your own podcast series, because there are concepts in that book that are just so simple to understand, yet have such far-reaching consequences. So if you don't mind, we are going to start at the beginning. And the beginning are the wells in Nigeria. Yeah, absolutely. As you've implied, I'm originally from Nigeria. And, you know, like many Nigerians who were fortunate, I had the opportunity to study in the United States. So at 16, I packed my bags, came to college here, got a one-way ticket, and life was good. After college, I got a job working as an engineer. And yeah, that was my story. But then on a fateful day in February 2008, I began reading a book about economic development and poverty. And I read about a 10-year-old girl who had to wake up every morning at 3 a.m., fetch firewood and sell. And for me, I remember that day like it was yesterday. That day was when everything changed in my life. I think I found 
what I wanted to try to do, at least before I passed on, and that was to figure out a way to reduce the number of 10-year-old girls who, for them, that was their daily reality. And so I started a nonprofit. Much of what I was reading, when you hear about poverty, when you hear about suffering, it's all about charity, nonprofits, giving, doing what you can to help those who cannot help themselves. By no means is there anything wrong with that. And so I started one and began doing some work in Nigeria. And one of the things we did, like, again, many nonprofits, is you go into a village or a community where there's no water and you build a well. So we raised money from friends and family, went to Nigeria, built a, a well. Several months later, the well breaks, and I'm like, what do we do now? Figured out a way to get somebody to go into the community to fix it. But then a few months after that, it broke again. Well, that cycle repeated itself about four times in different communities where we built wells. And, you know, once or twice, it's okay, but like four or five times, you start to say, okay, there's something wrong with my theory here. There's something wrong with what's going on. And I'm very grateful to God that he, he helped me see that, and I was able to stop and say, I need to do this more sustainably. Cutting the long story short, seeing the failures over and over again led me to go back to school. And I was fortunate to get an MBA from Harvard Business School, which is where I met the late, great Professor Christensen. And meeting him, learning from him, understanding how systems work fundamentally changed. My life changed how I thought about development how I thought about poverty and has given me a renewed sense of hope for how Africa and many other regions in the world can not just eradicate poverty, but can become prosperous, can become places where innovation thrives. And, you know, I'd love to, to share as many of those ideas with you today that I can. And I'm hoping to squeeze many of them in. And I have to say, while I was researching you, I never tired of any of the stories. I saw some multiple times and I never got tired of reading them or listening to them. So we will go over them. Just to take you one step back quickly, before you started your foray into development, what did you do? Did you leave Nigeria and did you have the idea of the American dream? And, you know, were you going to go yeah. to America? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean... Maybe, I mean, everybody who comes to America, well, I take that back. I, I came to America hoping I would become prosperous. <laughs> I didn't know what that would look like. You know, you don't know what you don't know. But I certainly did not come to America to suffer. I came here for some version of the American dream, whether that was big house, big car, and maybe a couple of buy anything you want. And I will say I was sort of well on my way. You know, after graduating college, uh, a few years in to working, I bought a house, bought a car, you know, bought an SUV even, you know, single guy, big SUV, you know, what am I, what am I doing with an SUV? So the uh, America is sort of, the air you breathe is uh, smells of consumerism and materialism, right? Everyone has a ton of stuff. We spend billions of dollars in storage, just storing the stuff that we hardly ever use. And so I think that's sort of where I was. 
I was not thinking about Africa at all. I would only think about it when I would think about my family or friends. It was not on my mind. I was in America. I was living my life until this transformation happened, which really just changed everything for me. Yeah, I think I read a quote where you said when you were reading about development and poverty that it gripped you like nothing had ever gripped you before. Why is it? Why do you think that gripped you? You must have read a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think there is a sense of how fragile life is to me and how how lucky we are to be living right now, to be living where we are, to be born into the families we're born into, to have the parents and siblings and opportunities. Those things which define a lot of how we experience life we have and had nothing to do with, nothing to do with. You just get a sense that there is no other way to define or explain my life and the opportunities that have been afforded me than luck, like winning the lottery and just the grace of God. And so when that overwhelming sense of opportunity and favor is upon you. I think my only reaction was, how do I do something about this? I don't know that it was a conscious decision. It was just a reaction, you know, much like you, like boiling water. <laughs> the water has no choice. When you put it on fire, it gets to a certain temperature, it boils, right? Like there are physical phenomena. There are just phenomena that you, there's no choice in the matter, right? You throw something up, and the laws of gravity act on it. And I think something happened to me as I read about this 10-year-old girl whom I could have been, but I just wasn't for some reason. And so, yeah, I just that, that I think for me was, there was no other way to explain it, right? It, it, and, and I think it manifests differently for different people. This is how it manifested for me. I'm grateful that it did, but as people go through their experiences in life, my own recommendation is lean into what's happening and, you know, you're sort of writing and charting your own story, right? I think people will have different experiences. Well, I think it's interesting because often when the wells break down, that's exactly when people go, typical Africa. You see, nothing works, never going to work. It's a useless exercise, money down the drain. Well, at least I tried and you can have a good conscience that you did and then you walk away, which is what happens a lot here on this continent. So explain to me how you go to a book as being the answer to that <laughs> problem. And yeah. just a little bit about how did you go about thinking, how should we write this book and what should we put into this book? Yeah, I mean, so the book idea, that's Clay Christensen. He was a professor at Harvard Business School was a great management thinker and scholar, the architect of disruptive innovation. He was globally renowned, incredible, incredible man, brilliant and kind. And so when, when I took his course, it changed the way I thought about Africa. His course at uh, Harvard Business School was the most popular second year course. And if you allow it, it changes the way you think and see the world. He presents you a set of theories 
that help you sort of explain how the world works. A lot of it is in the innovation management sphere, but you know, the quality of a good theory once told me is the applicability in other facets of life. And so you could actually put the theories on as a set of lenses and you start to see the world differently. And so I started to see the world differently and I started to have hope. I started to have hope that Africa can prosper. It's not even a question. It's not a question at all. I never believed that, right? I just thought we had been doomed to poverty forever. Just we cannot get out of this cycle, this rut. We just can't. But I truly believed after I learned from Clay that prosperity was within reach. It's going to be very difficult to grasp, but it was within reach. It wasn't impossible. So that's the first thing. The second is, okay, now why a book and what did we put in there? Well, Clay, one of the ways he communicated was he would get all his ideas down into books. I mean, he had written books on education. He had written books on healthcare. He'd written book on innovation, his first book, which introduced disruptive innovation. So he'd written about 11 or so books. And one of the things he did was let's take these theories, apply them to a complex problem. In our case, it was development and poverty. And let's see if we could come up with something that is fresh, different, inspiring, and true. So that's what we did. In terms of what went into the book, I'd never written a book before, had barely written as an engineer. So engineers are not known for their writing <laughs> prowess. <laughs> but then Karen Dillon came on and Karen Dillon, there would be no prosperity paradox without her. She came on and she really helped us figure out how to tell the stories we were going to tell. And I remember Karen telling me something once. She said, look, on the one hand, you could get all the facts and data figures put into this book, but then who's going to read it? That version of the book is for you. You have to think about what is the job to be done, which is one of the theories that we talk about at the Institute of the person reading the book. You have to think about a busy mom or dad, a busy uh, student or professional, and they're so pressed for time, right? You have to want them to pick up this book, enjoy it so much that when they get home, they can't wait to pick it up again. And so you have to tell compelling stories that change the way they see the world. When Karen did that, and we began thinking about what went into the book, a few ideas emerged. The first was, what is our core thesis? And that's about market creating innovations, which we'll talk about. The second is, well, it's fun to talk about innovation, but America is so different than Africa or like South Asia or even Latin America. And so we had to present an America that looked like many of the regions in the world today and say, well, by the way, this thesis we talk about happened when America had demographics similar to Nigeria, or Ghana, or India. The other thing is, well, okay, maybe I buy the idea, but what about corruption? What about infrastructure? What about institutions? Our problem is institutions. We don't have good institutions. 
And so again, we had to lean into those meaty, difficult subjects, but we had to figure out a way to tell compelling stories about each of those so that people could see a different way. And that's what we did. I think what makes it so beautiful is that you make things so clear, so much so that afterwards, and I think that's the beauty of clarity, you think, geez, how could it be any other way? And yet these were groundbreaking new concepts. They really made you think in a different way. And so I'd love to share that Eureka moment by asking you to talk about those concepts. And I think from what I understand, the first building block is the three different types of innovation that exist. We have to first understand that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the way we categorize things in the world is very important, right? We make decisions every day, but we make buy-in decisions, consumption decisions every single day. And companies, uh, organizations make production decisions every single day as well. Well, you can think about the world as this complex hodgepodge of a lot of things, inflation, monetary policy, quarterly earnings reports, infrastructure, institutions, laws, schools, politics, election cycles. There are so many things that affect these decisions we make. But what we try to do is say, let's step back and think about the world through the lens of consumption and non-consumption, which means for the, for, the, for the vast majority of people in the world, they make decisions every day that fuel non-consumption. They are not able to participate in the economies. They're not able to consume things that would help them make progress. And then for some others, they just consume, right? There's just a ton of consumption opportunity. They consume schools, best schools, healthcare, housing, leisure. They go on vacation, but they just consume. And so when you think about it that way, it helps us begin to see our innovation activity and decisions are either um, targeted at consumption or non-consumption. And that's where the breakdown of the three types of innovation comes. The first type we like to call sustaining innovations. These are innovations that make good products better. They're targeted at the consumption economy. Companies tend to sell them for a little bit more money, a little bit more margin. They're more vibrant. The best and brightest want to work there. And so if you if you looked at Apple's most recent developer day, it was a wonderful event where they announced a lot of new products and features. It was exciting. They were making good products better. They were introducing new features for some of the most demanding customers of their existing products. And the idea with sustaining innovations is if I couldn't afford the products before, say an iPhone 10 or 11, there is no way I could afford an iPhone 12 or a 13 or 14, right? If I couldn't afford the older products, there's no way I could afford the newer ones because again, the companies tend to sell them for a little bit more, more money or sometimes a lot more money. So those are sustaining innovations. Companies sell them for more money and they're important, but they, they don't unlock or create new markets, right? They keep companies at the frontier. They keep them exciting. People want to work there, but they don't quite create new consumption. Efficiency innovations are the other type. These are actually also very important because they free up a lot of cash flows. In fact, if you think of any resource extraction industry, they are designed to thrive on efficiency innovations. 
Now, whether it's oil, diamond, gold, gas, when you have to extract a resource from somewhere and the price of that resource is not something you can control, the average manager in that sector is focused on extracting as much value from the processes as possible. So reducing cost as much as possible. But the thing is, efficiency innovations tend not to be targeted at non-consumers. When they happen, they free up cash for the companies. The company can decide what to do with the cash, give it back to shareholders, put it in the bank. But that's a feature of efficiency innovations. Think about many African countries that have resources. How much of those resources have gone to helping the average person? Market-creating innovations are, they're different. It's uh, what we've been talking about. They're what Richard Lefley did with MicroInsure. They're what Polarum did with Indomie Noodles. What many of the telecommunications companies have done with access to mobile telecommunications across Africa and the world. They transform complicated and expensive products into products that are simple and affordable. As a result, they make them available to a whole new set of people who historically would never have access. They would not have had access to them. And when this happens, what you get is the engine of economic growth and productivity in a society. You crank that engine on and it's really difficult to turn off. It's not impossible. There are ways you could do it, but it's really difficult to turn off. So I think just understanding the different types of innovations, how no organization is exclusively focused on one over another, you do manage. Organizations tend to manage a portfolio of innovation activities. But the key is, are we here to increase access or are we here to make things more efficient? Or are we here to improve certain features in a product? But if you answer that question as a leader of an organization, it sort of gives you a sense for which camp you're in. I think even going beyond that, the beauty of market creating innovations is the whole aspect of that it creates much more than just access and affordable products. It creates a whole ecosystem around it. I think you use the example of Mexico, you know, when car manufacturing got put into Mexico so that cars could be made cheaper. It didn't really benefit Mexico in any way in terms of building roads, infrastructure, anything. It just benefited the people who were making the cars to produce cheaper cars for export. When Indomie noodles, you mentioned them earlier, came into Nigeria, um, they could have just produced cheaper noodles and exported them out or so sold them to Nigerians. who There were no noodles at the time. But they did something far more important than that. Can you just dwell on that a little bit? Because that's almost the most beautiful part of market uh, creating innovations. Yeah, absolutely. So they could have focused on just continuing to import the product, which is what they did, and leaving access for those who were wealthier. But they saw that the average Nigerian could benefit significantly from this. And so they made the necessary investments to bring production locally, invest in marketing and distribution to give out a ton of free samples annually to sensitize the average Nigerian's taste buds so that we are now one of the largest consumers of instant noodles in the world. If you look at instant noodle consumption per capita, so right there with like China and Korea and many other Asian countries. And so Toleram, which is a sort of parent company that did this, focused on the average Nigerian. Today, they support tens of thousands of jobs in the economy. They've made investments reaching half a billion dollars or more. 
over the past 20-ish years. And they continue to be a symbol, a positive symbol across the country. And I think there's a tendency to think I'm going to go into a market on Monday and Tuesday. I'm going to create a market that's going to serve everybody. That's not quite how many of these stories go. Um, but one of the things that happens is who is your target customer? Who are you really trying to serve? When you understand who you're really trying to serve and the necessary investments you need to make to serve them, I think over time you could spread out your activities such that you ultimately get to that customer. And I think that's what Tolerum did. It took them more than 15 years to make a profit. So <laughs> they had to keep investing and keep serving. But today, it's a, it's a very different story. How they did those investments was by taking internal risk. And at first I didn't understand that. But uh, I think uh, if you can just expand on what that means, that internal risk, that you don't rely on outsiders to solve your problems in a country, be it power or water or infrastructure. How did Tolerum deal with that? Yeah, so what they realized is many of the services that they would need to provide a pack of noodles to the average Nigerian didn't exist across Nigeria. Electricity, access to properly trained workforce, infrastructure, partners, whether it's logistics partners, distribution partners, warehousing, retail shops, just so many things that you've come to expect in maybe a wealthier economy they didn't have. Tolaram didn't say there's no opportunity here. Instead, they said, well, if it doesn't exist, we have to create it. There's a difference. If it doesn't exist, we have to create it. And so they created these things. They invested in their own electricity, power plants, and wastewater treatment facilities. They invested in their own distribution and logistics. They invested in packaging companies, they invested in manufacturing, invested in retail, warehouses. They invested in the infrastructure that made it possible for them to get a pack of noodles to the average person. These investments happened over time and they're still happening as they continue to invest in farming and agriculture today. They're still happening, but if, to your earlier point, they focused on just serving a small population, they wouldn't have needed to make these investments. It's precisely because they wanted the average person to have access that they knew they had to make these investments. And as a result, they've been incredibly successful because they've been able to bring in internalized risks, wrap their arms around many of these business activities that they would ordinarily have outsourced but they've been able to bring it in-house, manage that, reduce cost, and make sure that, you know, a pack of noodles is still roughly 20 cents over, you know, a couple of decades, which is mm -hmm. pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things that we hear is a complaint from multinationals, from companies, from entrepreneurs. Uh, everybody kind of starts with this sentence, which you encapsulated in your TED talk um, that I'm going to put in the show notes. And that is, why would anyone want to invest where the politicians are corrupt and the people are poor? And, and that's why a lot of people just say, well, there's no point. Uh, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. Tell me, how, how must people think about 
reversing this concept of you may as well not go to Africa. People are poor. There's no middle class, no infrastructure, no skills. Forget about it. Yeah, I mean, first, I think it's important to understand it's, it's a difficult challenge, right? No one decides to run a marathon, 26.2 miles, and thinks, oh, it's going to be an easy peasy, you know, I don't need to train. I'm just going to wake up on Tuesday and do it. It's very different from, you know, certainly other challenges in our lives that may be a lot easier. So it, it is a difficult challenge. That's the first thing that we have to understand. The second is that it is about market creation, not market expansion, not taking a product or service that's available somewhere else, copying and pasting the model to another country. It's precisely because people don't have access, because there is no market somewhere that you, the innovator, the investor, the entrepreneur or the policymaker, you are making a decision to go there and create access. When you understand those two things, it at the very least helps you appreciate the journey that you have set to go on. And, you know, I, I think that's incredibly important. If you think you're going on a one mile walk and you end up, you know, you're still walking after 10 miles, that's very different. And, and you'll probably give up hope. So I think that's very important. After you've overcome those things, then the next is, okay, how can I divide the economy? Every economy, regardless of where it is, is made up of consumers and non-consumers. People who consume certain products and services, and then people who do not consume. And people who don't consume tend to not consume because there are barriers to consumption. It's not because they don't want to buy or purchase products and services that can make their lives easier. It's just because there are certain barriers that prevent consumption. They, they tend to be money, so financial barriers tend to be time. You know, it's going to cost me a lot of time to go consume this access, right? It's like, okay, maybe I want to consume, but it's just very difficult to get access to the product around me. And then skill, right? So skill is to consume this product. I need to learn something that I currently don't know how to do. And that serves as a barrier. Understanding the barriers helps an innovator appreciate what they must do to develop a product or a service that overcomes those barriers so that the non-consumer can access the product. So if, if it's primarily a financial barrier, the innovator starts thinking about ways he or she can make the product or service less expensive. And there's several methods out there, whether it's, you know, really understanding what the non-consumer needs, delivering that product or service in a way that doesn't break the bank, whether it's providing access to credit through your product or service, focusing on a certain type of market that can consume your product or service in a way that it helps them be more productive, make more money so that the likelihood of them paying you back is increased. Right. These are just things that you can begin to think about to help you develop a strategy to create the market. And so to recap real quick, we've talked about how 
It is very difficult. That's the first thing. You have to understand what journey you're going on. That's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> the second thing is the fact that it's difficult is one thing, but you are actually going in to create the market. So when you look and see that there's no market here, people don't have access, they don't seem to have spending power, and they don't seem to have an ecosystem of suppliers, that's actually a good thing. That means there is significant opportunity. It just hasn't been created yet. And then the third thing is delineating the economy into consumers and non-consumers. Really understanding the barriers that prevent consumption, working backwards from there, and then developing a solution that can help these consumers gain access. I mean, yeah, there's so much more to it, but I think just those reframings starting there, those are things that I think can help us start to see things differently. Ifusa, could you give examples of how this thinking, the old way of thinking, you know, what it looks like with examples? I know you term it the push-pull um, investments. Can you show what are the typical push investments? and why you probably think they're not working and haven't been working, and what a pool investment looks like. Yeah, so push investments tend to be those that, you know, no one argues about, right? They are designed by experts in a particular field, whether it's economics, whether it's development, and they presume that a particular product or service will be important for people in a region whether it's people in a region must have access to financial services, they must have access to water, must have access to sanitation services, education, it doesn't matter what it is. And they develop a solution. Typically, they take solutions that exist from elsewhere and then they implant the solution into these communities that they believe require them in order to survive. And so you look across Africa, universal education programs, you dig a little deeper, you find out that a significant percentage of children who go to schools are actually now learning. This has been documented. It continues to be documented. The researcher Lamp Pritchett does a really good job of this. That's a push program, but nobody argues against it, right? We have to educate the kids. We have to invest in education. So we push these investments without doing the really hard work of asking, why are we pushing these investments? Are the kids learning? How can we make them learn better? What happens when the kid graduates from primary school? Can they afford secondary school? Can they afford university? Are there jobs waiting for them after university? Is there a productive economy that's gonna absorb the skills they've learned or not learned? Like those are hard questions and those transcend this idea of just pushing what we believe is the right solution. Before you go on to pull, as you say, nobody can argue with education or against education, right? But I think the push mentality, if you can call it that, for me was very um, uh, significant when I read somewhere uh, a case study where you said the, the CEO of Nestle, I think, uh, they came into parts of Africa and after a couple of years they withdrew. And the quote went something along the lines of, you know, we thought these countries were going to be in the next Asia, 
but then they weren't. And the problem was that, you know, we thought there was a middle class, but actually the middle class lives in slums and poor people can't afford our products. I don't know if you just want to say something about that, that that seems to be, you know, this over-reliance on, on there being an existing middle class and that that seems to be at the heart of the conundrum around Africa, right? That in most cases, the middle class is really small, so they are not our last hope for making money. That hope lies elsewhere. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that you're going to go to Africa and a middle class is going to be waiting for you and then you can serve them is not realistic. Again, we have to ask, where does the middle class come from, right? Like, I mean, they just, they just don't appear. They come through the process of market creation. So when you create a market that makes something simple and affordable, many more people can access it. That market pulls in so many things into the economy. It pulls in education. It pulls in healthcare. It pulls in jobs. And when you, when it pulls those things in, it does it so that the market can survive, so that the market can thrive. When that happens, you get a rising middle class. And so without market creation, you cannot have a middle class. So it's precisely the process of going in, identifying major struggles, developing an innovative solution that can serve as many people as possible, essentially creating a market, making products simple and affordable. That's how you get to a middle class. And so the story of Africa's growth, if you have been paying attention, has been one of potential. There's just a lot of potential. Africa's potential and Africa's rising and this is now Africa's time. And Africa's time is all the time or none of the time. In other words, it could be Africa's time today. But being Africa's time, it feels like everyone's sort of waiting for Africa to emerge, but no one wants to do the hard work of taking the risk to invest in innovations that can serve people who historically you're like, there's no way he or she could afford that product. That's what it takes. When a company decides to invest and commit to a country to do the hard work, what does that look like? Well, I'll give an, an example. We wrote about this a bit in the book too, but an entrepreneur called Richard Lefley, who visited I think it was Zambia and found that many people didn't have access to insurance. And this particular woman who lost her husband and just delved into poverty right after that. I mean, he was a taxi driver. She was a trader. And after losing the husband, the family's lot was just gone. Everything was gone. And that gives you a sense for where and how most people across Africa live. They are one mistake away from just going down into poverty. Now, that is not a continent on the rise. That is a continent that is thirsty for market creation. 99% of Africans exist under $7,300 a year. $7,300 a year, 99%. Again, that's not a continent rising or about to rise. We have to create these markets. Now, what Richard Lefty found was there was no insurance products. No insurance products for people who needed it the most. 
So he begins the hard work of understanding how to sell insurance. Insurance, which is a product that many and even wealthy countries do not invest in for one reason or another. But he starts to investigate, how do I make it so that the average person in Africa came and moved out to India, a couple other countries after, but how do I make it so that they can afford insurance? He experimented, got grants, he got investments, he learned a lot. And sparing the details, what he eventually ended up with was an initiative where he partnered with the telecommunications companies and worked to deal with them such that whenever their customers would increase the number of minutes they had, they would top up their minutes on their phone, they topped up up to a certain number, they would get access to insurance. That was an innovative model that I had never heard of anywhere else in the world. I mean, if I want to buy insurance, I just go to the insurance broker or in the insurance companies and I purchase insurance. But this was a model that was very different, context-specific, spoke to the situation that the average non-consumer of insurance across Africa was faced with and essentially birthed the microinsurance industry. Microinsure was a company he founded and that was absorbed by another company called Microinsurance Company and they serve more than 100 million people today with like basic insurance products. And I think that's the kind of thinking that's necessary. It's not easy, like I said earlier, but when you are able to crawl into the lives of people, of non-consumers, understand their struggles, work backwards from there, figure out a way to develop something through trial and error, over time, you will ultimately get to success. But you have to know, obviously, the game you're playing. Foster, as we race towards the end, I want to ask you, I mean, the book was published in 2019. COVID happened uh, just shortly after. The whole world kind of turned on its head and the way we do things turned on its head. How do you look at the way Africa is developing now if you look at it through the lens of your book? Have you started seeing more market-creating innovations? Are you worried about the money pouring in to Africa at the moment, especially the digital hubs, for example? Is it just more of the same where people are pouring in money, but they're not committing to the country? How do you see things at the moment? Yeah, it's sort of, it's both and both, right? I mean, uh, you know, we're getting a lot more investments for the entrepreneurial ecosystem, venture capital mm -hmm. investments, and a lot more funding coming in there. Um, but you see, capital is very impatient. And so if we don't start to see returns here in the next th you know, two to three years, many of these investors are going to flee. Certainly, you could see what's happening globally in that space. The thing is, if the capital can understand that it must be patient for growth and impatient for profits, if the capital providers could understand the idea and the concept of market creation, not market expansion, market exploitation, then I think Africa has a chance. If that doesn't happen, I'm afraid we're going to keep talking about Africa's potential in another 10 years, another 20 years, another 30 years. There are signs of hope that innovation and entrepreneurship is beginning to take 
more of a center stage, more, not, not, not all. I mean, you look at MasterCard Foundation's investments across Africa, they are really trying to emphasize innovation and entrepreneurship. So there are signs of hope, but I'm still afraid that the thesis, you know, the traditional thesis of we must fix everything in Africa first and then investments will flow is still prevalent. And instead, what I think we need to do is understand that the way we fix everything in Africa is through innovation and entrepreneurship, is through market creation, the hard work of serving non-consumers. That leads to the jobs, that leads to the profits that are taxed, that helps us build better institutions. That leads to the profits that are taxed, that helps us build better infrastructure. It's not the other way around. If we look away from venture capitalists and the investment coming in, what can African leaders do? What can the African elite do? What can young people coming out of the school system or university system, if they look out and they go, there's no points, it's all corrupt, let's wait for development, what would you tell them to do? I mean, look at the portfolio of what they're investing in, in terms of their time, and ask, is this market creating? Will this lead to market creation? It starts there. We can assess and be more efficient and be more diligent. But if we're investing in activities that are not going to lead to new markets, then I'm afraid we're going to really just continue to do more of the same. It's a hard question to answer because that's, you know, a policymaker who is thinking about agriculture policy is different from one who's thinking about digital, thinking about one who's thinking about bringing investment into the country. Those are very different. But if you're asking yourself, if I do these 10 things, how will that impact the economy realistically? Not in some ideal world, realistically. Is this going to lead to a new market that serves people who never had access in a sustainable way? potentially creates jobs? If the answer is no, then the question is, all right, how do I do that? How do I make policies that incentivizes market creation? It's more asking better questions. I think that's the way I would, I would frame it. As far as I understand it, your next book is going to answer some of these questions as well, though. How exactly one goes about putting into practice what was first raised in Prosperity Paradox. Can you give us a bit of a preview? I think what we're going to try to do is dig into the process of market creation and understand it better, peel the covers and help people see how markets get created so that they can assess their own activities and say, are we actually creating a market or are we just hoping that some middle class emerges somewhere and begins to buy a product? That's what we're really trying to understand. In your TED Talk, you finished by saying you're far more optimistic, and I think this was in 2017, you're far more optimistic about Nigeria than you ever have been. How are you in 2023? How optimistic are you uh, when you look at Nigeria or other countries? There's a saying we have, when there's life, there's hope, and pessimism never pays. And so in some ways, I have to be optimistic. But the reality is, is my optimism connected to a set of activities that are easy or difficult? In other words, what is it going to take 
to realize this optimism that I have. And I'm afraid it will be a little bit difficult, all right? So every day, the set of activities that innovators, investors, policymakers have to make either becomes easier or more difficult. It never sort of stays static. And so the optimism doesn't wane, but the amount of work necessary to get Nigeria to a place of prosperity either increases or decreases. You know, in the past, I would say decade, they've certainly become more difficult. We've got a lot more Nigerians, a lot you know, more Africans trying to leave the continent, leaving the continent for brighter opportunities, very understandable. And so those things affect the work necessary, but they don't really change the level of optimism one has. So I remain optimistic. For episode show notes and exclusive content, visit africanoptimist.co.za where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms or listen via our website. Thank you for spending time with us.